0: This is the Islamic History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 17, powered by islamiclearningmaterials.com.
1: Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers, and add a little bit of spices, and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail.
0: Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. This will be the final chapter on Uthman ibn Affan's Caliphate. This episode, inshallah, will also introduce us to Ali ibn Abi Talib's Caliphate and how he sort of, kind of, sort of rose to power. Uh, We'll get into it, inshallah. After the show, I'm going to discuss my thoughts on the recent election in the United States, as well as some minor changes coming to this podcast. Very minor. Don't worry about it. Inshallah, show notes will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman5, U-T-H-M-A-N 5. And so with that, let's go ahead and get into the show. Season 2, Episode 17. We are now entering the final year of Othman's life. For the past several years, there has been a small, but vocal and growing movement against his reign. Their numbers were not large and they did not have any political power. Nonetheless, they managed to attract some influential supporters such as Ahmad ibn Yasir and Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr. Without question, their movement could no longer be ignored. And they had a lot to be angry about. Some of them had been abused by Uthman's governors. Others felt the government's stipend policy was unfair. And they accused Uthman of nepotism because many of those governors were related to him. But their main disagreement with Uthman was that they felt he was unfit to be caliph. At 82 years, he was a very old man. He did not have an impressive military or political legacy, and his soft, passive character seemed out of touch with the demands of a young and growing empire. To his credit, when Othman became aware there was serious unrest in the empire, he did call a meeting of his governors to discuss the situation. However, they could not come up with a cause nor a solution to the problem. Instead, Othman decided to hold another meeting the following year, this time inviting the community at large to attend. The meeting would be held during the Hodge season of 35 AH, or 656 of the Common Era. Othman promised to give everyone a chance to air their grievances. When the pilgrimage season rolled around, a group of Egyptian protesters decided to attend the meeting. As they made their way to the Holy Sanctuary, word spread quickly and more people joined them. Large crowds in particular joined from Kufa and Basra. As they passed through various cities on their way to Medina, their numbers continued to swell. By the time they reached Medina, they numbered over 500 people. Since this was the hajj season, there were already thousands of people visiting the area. However, many of the residents of Medina had left for Mecca, over 200 miles away. Many Muslims also perform Umrah during this period. Like Hajj, Umrah is also a pilgrimage to the Kaaba in Mecca. However, Umrah does not include as many rituals as Hajj and is usually much shorter and easier to complete. Furthermore, Umrah may be performed at any time of the year, whereas Hajj has specific dates and times. In order to obtain the spiritual rewards of both, Many Muslims perform Umrah a few weeks before making Hajj. This combined pilgrimage is called Hajj Tamattu'. When Uthman called this assembly, many of the attendees were performing Hajj Tamattu' and were between Umrah and Hajj. He held this assembly in a small village just outside of Medina. It should be understood that not everyone at this assembly was against Uthman. In addition to the malcontents, all of the governors were there as well. Furthermore, this was an open invitation and most likely there were many people there out of curiosity or for other purposes. Othman addressed the crowd, then opened the floor for the people to air their grievances. He promised that any complaints of injustice would be dealt with. He must have been surprised when no one had anything to say about the governors. Instead, they directed their complaints towards Uthman. One by one, the allegations began to fly. At first, their complaints were mostly political. They accused him of giving away wealth and land to his family, appointing his family members to high positions, appointing unworthy people to high positions, giving his cousin Ibn Abi Sahra a large portion of the spoils of Libya, not shortening his prayers during the Hajj six years earlier, exiling Abu Dhar to the wilderness, bringing Marwan ibn al-Hakam's father out of exile, preventing them from using public lands to graze their animals, beating Ahmad ibn Yasir, and finally burning their Qur'ans. And then things took a more personal turn. They began to point out what they felt were shortcomings in Othman's character. He did not participate in the Battle of Badr. He fled during the Battle of Uhud. And the most preposterous of all, that he did not pledge allegiance to the Prophet under the tree. To understand that last personal attack, we have to go back to the time of Prophet Muhammad. Thirty-five years earlier, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and his followers fled the persecution of Mecca and resettled in Medina. This migration was called the Hijrah and is one of the most important events in Muslim history. In the first five years of the migration, there were three major battles between the Muslims of Medina and the pagan Quraysh of Mecca. The record was two to one in favor of the Muslims. Mecca still dwarfed Medina in terms of power, population, and prestige. However, it was clear to all that the status of Medina was rising, and the Quraysh seemed incapable of stopping them. In the sixth year of the migration, Prophet Muhammad decided to make Umrah the minor pilgrimage to Mecca. Even though Medina and Mecca were in a state of war, tradition demanded all feuds be put aside when visiting the Kaaba. The Quraysh, as the primary tribe of Mecca, were duty bound to allow everyone access to the Kaaba, regardless of their affiliation. However, when they learned Prophet Muhammad and 1400 of his followers were coming to make Umrah, those traditions were tossed aside. As was customary, the Muslims arrived carrying few weapons and were dressed in simple pilgrimage garb. Still, they were prevented from entering Mecca by a group of armed Quraishi soldiers on horseback. The Muslims demanded entry to Mecca. They argued that no one was ever prevented from worshipping at the Kaaba. But the Quraysh would not budge and the two sides were at a standstill. Finally, Othman volunteered to meet with the leaders of Mecca and try to negotiate an agreement. Since he was a member of the powerful Umayya clan, he hoped they could come to a peaceful resolution. The soldiers escorted Uthman inside Mecca while Prophet Muhammad and the other Muslims camped outside. The hours turned to days and still they heard no word from Uthman. Many began to fear the Quraysh had betrayed him and were holding him prisoner or even worse. Finally, the Prophet also began to worry about Uthman. He sat under a tree and gathered his companions around him. He declared that if Uthman had been killed, the Muslims would take vengeance, and this may possibly entail fighting to the death. He took an oath from his companions that they would sacrifice their lives for Uthman. This pledge signified their dedication to Prophet Muhammad and their commitment to each other. It was known as al Shajara, or the Pledge of the Tree. Its significance is even commemorated in the Qur'an in chapter 48, verse 18. Certainly, Allah was pleased with the Muslims when they pledged allegiance to you under the tree. Allah knew what was in their hearts, and he sent tranquility down on them and rewarded them with a definite victory. And now, 35 years later, people were blaming Uthman for not being present for the pledge of the tree. Considering Othman's absence was the reason for the pledge, one can see how silly this accusation was. Othman answered each allegation, both personal and political. His answers to the political questions were very logical and straightforward. He argued that if he gave gifts to anyone, he did so from his own wealth. And he may have appointed some governors who were related to him, but he had also appointed many who were not. As for Ammar ibn Yasir's beating, that was a misunderstanding and was never authorized by him. However, the personal accusation seemed to strike a nerve with Uthman. He acknowledged that he did not take part in the battle of Badr. But his wife, at the time, was also the Prophet's daughter and she was terminally ill. Prophet Muhammad excused Uthman from the battle in order to care for his wife. He also admitted to running away during the Battle of Ahud. However, there were many Muslims who ran away when they were ambushed by the enemy cavalry during that fight. On top of that, Allah forgave all of them in verses revealed in the Quran. Chapter 3, verse 155 states, Certainly, those among you who turned back on the day the two parties met, Certainly, it was Satan who caused you to slip because of something they had earned. And Allah has already forgiven them. Certainly, Allah is forgiving and forbearing. If Allah had already forgiven me, he argued, how can anyone still hold it against me? With these logical and passionate arguments, the protesters seemed to calm down. And with the atmosphere more relaxed, Othman was ready to appease them. He asked them to come up with a list of things they desired, and he would do his best to accommodate them. After the meeting was over, he sent Ali ibn Abi Talib to meet them and bring back their list. In total, they only had three requests, and Uthman agreed to all of them. Number one, they wanted a raise in their stipends. Number two, they wanted their imprisoned friends released and their exiled friends returned. And finally, they wanted Amr ibn al-As to be reinstated as governor of Egypt. With their demands met, the protesters appeared to be satisfied and prepared to return home or continue with the hajj. But then, something happened that would change the course of history forever. Later that evening, one of the protesters intercepted a messenger attempting to leave Medina. The messenger was searched and they found a letter addressed to Ibn Abi Sahar, the governor of Egypt. The letter instructed the governor to punish this group of protesters in any way he saw fit. That mean he could imprison them, beat them, or kill them. And now, the ring that belonged to the prophet that Uthman had lost years earlier came back to haunt him. For the letter was also stamped with the seal of the caliph. To be fair, it is impossible the soft and gentle Uthman would have written this letter. There is also a theory that it may have been written by his secretary, Marwan ibn al-Hakam. However, this theory is also weak. Instead, it is likely that someone from among the protesters fabricated this letter and perhaps someone had found Uthman's lost ring and used it to place his seal on the letter. Whoever was behind the letter, it threw the mob into a rage. They marched back to Medina, intent on forcing Uthman to give up the caliphate. Hundreds of angry protesters marched back into Medina and surrounded Uthman's house. They were leaderless and did not really know what to do. All they knew was that Uthman had to go. This began a 40-day siege on Uthman's house. As the days stretched into weeks, more and more protesters joined the mob. Uthman, like the caliphs and the Prophet before him, had an open-door policy. He never felt the need for a security detail or entourage, and there was no police force in Medina. Most of the inhabitants of the city were in Mecca for the hajj and the military was thousands of miles away guarding the borders of the empire. The most powerful man in the world was virtually alone. Tensions escalated with each passing day. At first, the mob allowed Othman to come and go as he pleased. But eventually, they wouldn't allow him to leave at all, and towards the end of the siege, they even cut off his food and water. They gave Othman three simple yet impossible options. Either he could step down as caliph, or he could turn himself over to them so they could exact retribution, or they would storm his house and deal with him as they pleased. Othman was shocked at the sudden turn of events. He was even more shocked that they actually wanted to kill him. He could not see any reason for such extreme demands. From his window, he pleaded with the protesters to use reason. He denied having any knowledge of the letter. He tried reminding them of his status and closeness to Prophet Muhammad. He reminded them how he used to finance the Prophet's battles, how he paid for the expansion of the Prophet's masjid, how the Prophet used to praise him and compliment his character and modesty. But none of this seemed to work. The protesters responded by shouting verses of Qur'an at Uthman, justifying their cause. And Uthman responded by saying that he was present when those verses were revealed and they were being completely taken out of context. Even though most of the residents of Medina were away on Hajj, there were still several companions there. When Uthman was under siege, many of them came over to offer their assistance. In the early days of the siege, the mob allowed these companions to come and go at will. Othman used these opportunities to get their advice. Some of them advised him not to use violence and to continue appealing to the mob's logic and emotions. Others advised him to sneak out of the house at night and relocate to a safer area. Othman rejected this suggestion immediately. He argued that he was the caliph, He had done nothing wrong and it would be dishonorable for him to sneak around like a common criminal. Other companions suggested it was time for Uthman to get tough with these protesters. It would be a simple matter to send word to Maawiyah in Syria about the situation. He could have a well-armed battalion in Medina within two weeks. But Uthman did not like that idea either. He did not want to unleash the army against his own people. Since the military was not an option, some companions offered to fight off the mob themselves. Several of the older companions, who had supported Prophet Muhammad as young men, showed up at Uthman's house in full armor and bearing weapons. Uthman thanked the elderly gentlemen for their support and politely sent them home. Some suggested using the citizens of Medina to dispel the mob. Even though the protesters numbered in the hundreds, they were still outnumbered by the residents of Medina. But once again, Othman vetoed any form of violence. He would not kill another Muslim in order to save himself. And he did not want to be the first caliph to shed Muslim blood. As the siege dragged on, the mob began preventing anyone else from entering the house. Ali ibn Abi Talib tried to make it through but the protesters stopped him. All he could do was remove his turban and toss it towards Uthman's door, a symbolic gesture of support. However, some of Uthman's supporters were able to force their way into his house. Once they were in, they elected to stay with Uthman throughout the crisis. These included Ali's son Hassan, Uthman's secretary, Madwan ibn al-Hakam, the great narrator of Hadith and companion of Prophet Muhammad, Abu Huraira, and finally, the former caliph's son, Omar ibn Khattab, Abdullah ibn Omar. Despite Uthman's pleas, there were some clashes between these men and the protesters. One of these scuffles even left Hassan ibn Ali with slight injuries. On the twelfth day of dhul hijjah after nearly forty days, The siege came to a tragic end. According to his wife Naila, Uthman had a dream that changed his perspective on everything. In this dream, he saw Prophet Muhammad, Abu Bakr, and Omar waiting for him. They beckoned him to come break fast with them. When Uthman awoke, he knew what the dream meant. His death was imminent, and he would soon be reunited with his beloved friends. Othman then went to eat suhur, which is a small pre-dawn meal Muslims eat before fasting. He made his intentions to fast, then woke the other people in his house for the dawn prayer. After the prayer, he asked everyone except for his wife to leave the house. The other men protested, but he was the caliph and ultimately, they had to obey. When the others had left, Othman sat down with his wife Naila. And began reading the Quran as the sun rose over Medina. Eventually, the mob outside the house woke up and realized that Uthman and his wife were now alone. They filtered into the house and eventually came upon Uthman and Naila. They surrounded Uthman and began yelling and cursing at him. Muhammad ibn Abi Bakr grabbed Uthman by the beard and berated him violently. Othman recognized his old friend's son. Your father, he told the young man, would not approve of this. Horrified and humiliated, Mohammed ibn Abi Bakr released Othman and quickly slipped out of the house. But that did not stop the others. They continued hurling insults at Othman until finally one of them poked him with a stick. That seemed to spark something primal in the others. They began to punch kick and beat Uthman from all sides. Someone drew a sword and swung it at Uthman. He raised his arm to defend himself and the sword chopped off his hand. Naila screamed and reached forward to defend her husband, but another sword was swung and chopped off the tips of her fingers. And then the death blow came. A sword came down on Uthman's head, smashing through his skull. Uthman ibn Affan, the third righteous caliph, fell down dead. When the crowd realized they had killed Uthman, they quickly scattered and ran from his house. Naila also came out of her house, her injured hand bleeding and screaming for help. But by the time help arrived, the rest of the mob had completely dispersed. Some of his closest friends arrived and performed the janazah or the funeral prayer at Uthman's house. They did not bother to wash and shroud his body. They considered him a martyr and it was customary to bury martyrs in the same condition they died. But they did not bury him immediately. They secretly buried him two nights later to prevent anyone from defacing his grave. The news of Othman's murder threw shockwaves through Medina and the entire empire. Medina especially was thrown into a state of chaos. For three days, Wild gangs roamed the city as if they were in charge. Ordinary citizens did not feel safe and shut themselves up in their homes. The social order was breaking down and someone had to take charge. A few of the influential men of the city approached Ali ibn Abi Talib about accepting the caliphate. Coincidentally, some of the protesters responsible for Uthman's death also approached him for the same reason. They had long floated the idea that Ali deserved the caliphate over Uthman. But Ali hesitated. He was reluctant to accept the caliphate while Medina was in chaos and so soon after Uthman's death. Ali was not the only candidate. Two other companions, Talha ibn al and Zubair ibn al-Awam, were also approached. However, both men flat out refused. Finally, Ali agreed to accept the position, but he wanted it to be publicized. He went to the Prophet's Mosque and the announcement was made. Most of the residents came to give him the Be'ah, the Pledge of Allegiance. But Ali had to move fast. He did not yet have the full support of the empire behind him. In fact, most of his support came from the same people who had killed Othman. In order to be successful, Ali would have to convince the other companions to back him as well as punish those responsible for killing Uthman. Unfortunately for Ali, these two goals would prove to be nearly impossible. Okay, Alhamdulillah, I hope you found that beneficial and enjoyable if not also tragic and that uh, it was a quite a tragic ending to uthman's caliphate and unfortunately as uh, we are still suffering through those problems even to today but anyway uthman's caliphate is now over as you just listened to and we are about to enter the beginning of the caliphate of ali ibn abi talib and this is where i got to start throwing out some disclaimers first of all uh, my my practice of my practice of islam falls in line with what we generally call Sunni Muslims. And so, I don't want to take sides in this conflict between Ali and, and Mu'awiyah and others as we go forward with the story, inshallah. But I'm just giving you forewarning and a disclaimer that I'm going to provide the history from the Sunni perspective, although I will try my best to be as neutral and objective as possible, inshallah. Inshallah. Now, after we finish Ali's Caliphate, the era of the righteous Caliphs will be over. Okay, and so when that happens, I might, I'm not sure yet, I might take a break from the podcast to research and prepare for the next era, which is the beginning of the Umayyad dynasty. And so just be, just be prepared for that, inshallah. I may not take a long break. I may not take a break at all. Who knows, inshallah. But I do want there to be a a sort of um, separation between these two eras, uh, the era of the righteous caliphs and the era of the Umayyad dynasty. Uh, furthermore, we, um, I have produced many uh, bonus episodes over the past couple of months. Inshallah, uh, inshallah, that's in the past. I did do that, but inshallah, I will remove these bonus episodes very soon, most likely by the end of 2016. I want to remove those bonus episodes because they're kind of cluttering up my, my, um, the RSS feed, it's, it breaks up the storyline. So I'm going to remove those and put them in the archives, inshallah. So if you haven't listened to the bonus episodes yet, you should go ahead and do so or download them to your phone or tablet or whatever so you can listen to them later. It's free. Just go ahead and do it now. But inshallah, we'll be take, removing them from the timeline very soon. So let's go ahead and get into another topic, which I wasn't thinking about talking about, but now I guess I have to. Generally speaking, I prefer to avoid politics on this podcast. Uh, But as you've seen, especially through many of the episodes we've done, not to mention the uh, bonus episodes as well as this episode um, about Uthman's uh, murder. You're going to see a lot more politics when we get into Ali, Ibn Abi Talib's caliphate. And through the various bonus episodes we've done regarding the Muslim Brotherhood, the, um, the Syrian civil war, the conflict in Sudan between North and South Sudan, uh, Chechnya, all of these things have politics to it. And the politics can have a major impact on history. That's obvious. And so well, I don't want to get too political or anything. Definitely have to admit that the recent election we had here in the United States it It does have me concerned. I am very much concerned about a Trump presidency, particularly since he's supported by people who outright and vocally express their hatred of Muslims and if not hatred of at least their disdain for people of color and by people of color, I mean anyone who's not Anglo-Saxon, not you know Caucasian, generally speaking so I don't want to get too deep into all the stuff that Trump has said or done. I'm pretty sure if you have access to a podcast, you have access to the, to the Internet and you can find all that stuff out on your own. So I don't really have to go through all those things. But it is very important that first and foremost, as Muslims, we put our trust in the law. That's the most important thing we can do. But also, inshallah, we should also reflect about other Muslims. During our time right now and before, reflect throughout history how Muslims have had to overcome difficulties. You can listen to many of the episodes I've done and many that I have not gotten to yet, or find out the history about different events throughout Muslim history where Muslims have had to overcome serious difficulties. I think it's important that we really understand that, inshallah. Of course, we hope that. There will be no escalation in hostilities against Muslims while uh, Donald Trump is president. That's, of course, the primary hope that we have. We don't want that at all. But if it does come to that, we should really look towards our ancestors and the generations that came before us, wherever your heritage is from, whether you are Arab or or uh, from uh, Southeast Asia, or from the Indian subcontinent, or from Africa, or your African-American, wherever else you're from. Really try to think about how your ancestors had to fight against and overcome oppression, your Muslim ancestors, and even your non-Muslim ancestors. The point is to really understand that as Muslims, our primary goal after, of course, worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is to establish justice not just for us as Muslims but for everyone it is to establish justice while maintaining the rules of Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala keep that in mind as we go forward and you never know what part you may play in history you never know what little changes you can make to your life and to your behavior that can have tremendous impact but trust in Allah most of all, inshallah, you will get through this. And Now, your support of the Islamic History Podcast is greatly appreciated. There are many ways to support. Uh, certainly, you can get all of them, inshallah, all the different methods of supporting by going to the show notes, which will be at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman5, and I'm spelling Uthman, U-T-H-M-A-N, If you can go there, inshallah, you'll see several ways that you can support the Islamic History Podcast. Uh, I have a book recommendation for you. It is called Sin is a Trillion Dollar Industry. It was was written by Sister Jamila Jihad. She is the wife of Imam Suraj Wahaj. I'm pretty sure you know him. Famous uh, Muslim Da'i speaker and imam from uh, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, She wrote a a book called, um, once again, Sin is a Trillion Dollar Industry. She is going through a a tough time health-wise and also financially. So I believe she's losing her eyesight. I don't want to give all her business out like that, but she did put it on Facebook. But she's going through a tough time. So uh, if you can support her, inshallah, please purchase this book. It's not very expensive. It's available on Amazon. If you go to my website or go to the link, you can to go to Amazon to check it out. It's easy. Sin is a trillion-dollar industry, but if you can't remember the name, just go to islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman5, and you will see a link to her book, and inshallah, you can download it from there. Now, I got to give you, I gotta tell you the whole truth. The link, if you get it through my website, it will be an affiliate link, so I may get a few cents in kickback, but whether you, you have a problem with that or not, I hope not, inshallah. Whether you get it straight from me or you decide that you don't want to give me the, the uh, kickback and you want to get it yourself, it doesn't really matter. Just help the sister out, and inshallah, the book will also be beneficial to you as well. So, we're going to wrap this up uh, pretty quickly. The favorite Nasheed for the week is a song called Nothing Light by Native Dean. You can see the video for this song at the show notes page, which is, once again, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash Uthman5. When you go through that link, you will get the following. You can get the transcript. you get links to share the show. You will get a link to support the show with a pledge on Patreon. You can also purchase Sister Jamila Jihad's book, Sin is a Trillion Dollar Industry. You can do all that at the show notes. So with that, we're going to bounce out of here to Nothing Light by Native Dean. Until next week, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. We're Life Don't take innocent life. Don't take innocent life.
2: Don't take innocent life Don't innocent life. Women
1: and children, tell me really what you gon' prove? Just you're a coward in the lone wolf, bringing shame to your own roof, and only pain you be going to. In groups and religions, There's always dudes on the fringes who make ruthless decisions, and they justify killing. Yeah, they work on convincing individuals that tend to be violent with their tendencies, quicker make up enemies. The only way to solve the crisis is to kill and make the heart cold as ISIS Scripture teaches every life is priceless And you don't know if somebody will later be righteous Verses out of context to prove what they need to Utopia in heaven, they will claim to have the keys to Change will never come just by going killing people And is real, only hell is related One in this in life, we know that it's right of the you should know to the that. innocent trapped in the aftermath of blood and tears, Allah sees it all. To the men who sat in dark rooms with the scheme of smoke plumes, Allah sees it all. To Munafic, who only enter just to prey on the weakest man, you gonna get yours. To the sponsors of war leaving scores Locked in Nepal, man, Allah sees it all. But if you ask me, what do I see? So many moving with them selfish type of tendencies. Gotta handle the offense that they handed me. You did it for the Lord? No, that was deeply. Shot at the club, then he got it. Bomb the city, now you're patriotic. Bloody regimes, that's despotic. Mean no a law like them? Forget about it One innocent life We know that it's, it's like. like Killing all humanity And that ain't nothing that like what like. 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 you told yeah. us Every human soul is precious inside of the Lord You should know That's that you know.
2: Don't, don't, yeah. Yeah. don't take innocent life Because it is like Killing all humanity And that ain't nothing like that ain't nothing All like. the prophets told us That every single soul Is born with the spirit of the Lord The first
0: casualty of war is the truth. Then the second is the youth.
2: Send them off to die when they're young. Like right before they can understand what they've done. Now why is this done? How do we begin? We let the means justify the ends. Yeah. We hope the ends will wipe away the sins that have been committed. But y'all don't get it, you got me. How we justify Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mic drop, bombs fall. Two whole cities killed them all. All the men, the women, the children, and the dogs. What
1: in this life, night? We let it his like Humanity, and that ain't we yeah. every human soul? Yeah. Precious inside of the Lord, you should know that. one this in life? We you know that it's, it's right. life. killing all humanity, and that ain't nothing like. you told yeah. every human soul? Uh-huh. Precious inside of the Lord, you should know that. You should know that. Don't, don't, don't yeah. life, life,
2: life, life. You should yeah. know that. Baby, not be in yeah. don't, don't you should don't, don't, don't you should not don't take you don't, don't you should